Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you. As Johnny just said, my name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. Thanks for joining us today in worship. If it is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. We are, we are thrilled and excited uh, that you are here with us as our guest today. And, and I would love a chance uh, just to let you know how much we appreciate you. We have, a, we have a free gift at our welcome table out there. If you wouldn't mind, before you head home, stop by our welcome table so we can give you that free gift. Again, at, at just our way to say thank you. And then if you wouldn't mind taking a minute, just uh, filling out one of those welcome cards, that gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you for your visit today. So if you do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And and we're going to continue on in our series. So you find us in in the middle of our current sermon series going verse by verse through the Old Testament book of Ruth. So we're going to continue that today. We're going to finish out chapter two today. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter two. We're going to start in verse 14 and carry it through the end of the chapter. If you don't own a Bible, uh, again, at our welcome table, we have Bibles there. We'd love for you to just take one of those today as our gift to you. And then, of course, you can always follow along on on the screen behind me right there. So Ruth chapter two, and and as we come into chapter two, if maybe you, you weren't here last week or you've been out for a couple of weeks, just wanna kind of uh, reframe where we are. So Ruth begins, and just as the title of the book says, Ruth is about uh, Ruth, right? It's about Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. These are the two main characters of the book. And, and for each of them, the book starts out in just such tragedy, right? We see Naomi lose her husband, Elimelech. Now they have to move out of their, their hometown in Bethlehem because of a famine. They go to this place called Moab, and then he dies there, and then and then her sons marry Moabite women. One of those is is Ruth, and then we see that Naomi's two sons pass away. Ruth's husband dies in just the opening verses of Ruth chapter one. And then Ruth and Naomi make their way back to Naomi's hometown in Bethlehem at the end of chapter one. But, but we see that they're coming back into this setting. This, this uh, ancient setting in Jerusalem was very much ruled by men of the day. So women had very little rights and a widow at that time was just pretty much destined to spend out her days in poverty. So we're, we're coming back, although it is a homecoming for Naomi, we're, we're coming back with a, with a heaviness, a weight of pain and tragedy that Naomi has been walking through. But we find out something significant at the end of chapter one. If you remember, we see that they come back at the time of what was called the, the, the barley harvest. Bethlehem was, that word means house of bread. It was known for its wheat and barley and its harvest that they had. And they come at this time of the barley harvest. And we saw last week how, how that moment just, just changes everything for Ruth and Naomi. So we saw last week that Ruth goes out to what the Old Testament uh, refers to as, as gleaning. So again, widows in that time were, were extremely impoverished and really had no way to earn an income, provide for themselves, earn a living. They had to rely on other people. And one of the ways that the Lord provided for people that, that were in that situation was what was called the gleaning laws. So in the Old Testament, the gleaning laws called landowners to leave the edges and the corners of their field for the gleaners. And also anything that was left behind in the harvest. You could go through your field once and that was it. And anything that you left or forgot about or missed along with the edges and the corners was for the gleaners. And the gleaners were the lowest people in society, the most vulnerable in society, the, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigner. And Ruth checks two of those boxes, right? She is a foreign widow in Bethlehem. And the only way they're going to get food during this time is for somebody to go out and glean. So, so Ruth does that. And we were told at the beginning of chapter two that she, she just so happens, right? Just so happens to end up in a relative's field. And that man's name is Boaz. 
What we learn about Boaz is he is just just incredible guy, awesome dude, full of godly character. And immediately notices who Ruth is, finds out who she is and, and remembers, oh, this is Naomi. And, and he, he, he does some incredible things to show generosity and favor and kindness and grace towards Ruth. And we find out something interesting that I told you we were going to come back to this week, that Boaz is a close relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. And that matters. That's significant. We're going to find out a little bit why, and that's going to continue to flesh itself out as we go on in this series. So that's where we find ourselves. Ruth is gleaning in Boaz's field. He tells her, you can stay here. Don't go anywhere else. I'm going to help provide for all of your needs. I got you covered, girl. So so stay here. And now let's continue on. Let's see what happens at the end of chapter two here. So starting in verse 14, it says this. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. So this is what was going on during this time. So uh, in the middle of the harvest, the harvest was, was hard work, as we talked about last week. I mean, it's long days, long hours, hard work. You're just out there in the hot sun, chopping down barley and wheat stalks all day long. So they, they take a break midday to eat something. And, and during this time, uh, the meal was brought out for the servants, for whoever was working in the fields. But typically, the foreigner, the gleaner, whoever was out there in the field too, definitely not included. But what does Boaz do? Boaz demonstrates, again, his character by one, eating with his, his uh, hired servants. Like he's, he's the owner, right? He doesn't need to, he's the boss man. He doesn't need to come down and work and, and help out and, and be with the workers. But no, he, he cares for his employees. He cares for his servants. He, he loves these people and wants to spend time with them. So he, he's eating with them, which would have broke typical custom. And then also he does something just unheard of. He invites Ruth to join them. He invites Ruth to join them. And this is just crazy. Like gleaners did not have this kind of access. A foreign widow at this time would not have had this kind of access. Boaz is being extremely kind and generous Ruth by inviting her into this, by inviting her into this meal. And, and not only does, does he give her some food to eat, it says that, that he gives her more than enough, right? Like plenty, like overflowing amount. She eats her fill and then has leftovers, has leftovers to bring home to Naomi. So Boaz just it continues to demonstrate his character, his kindness, his favor, and, and his generosity towards Ruth. And then he, then he says, hey, by the way, Ruth, when, when you're gathering, take from the bundles. And remember what we said last week, what would happen was, was that how they would do this is the, uh, the men would walk through the fields first. They'd, they'd grab a handful of the barley stalks or wheat stalks, and then they'd chop them down and they'd kind of leave them in piles. And, and the women workers would be right there behind them, gathering them up, bundling them together, putting them on a cart, whatever it was to then at the end of the day, bring what you cut down to what was called the threshing floor, where you would separate the grain and all that kind of stuff. So that's what was going on. So gleaners, again, what would they, they would have to do is wait for all the people to be done, all the hired hands to be done, cutting down the barley, cutting down the wheat, whatever it was, be done, finished completely, and then they could come through. And Boaz, first of all, is saying, no, just stay with us. You don't have to wait till we're done. Just stay with us. Oh, and by the way, you can take from the bundles. You don't have to go and try to chop down stuff on your own. You just, you just take from what we're doing. Just take from the bundles. 
And then he tells his men, hey, by the way, as you're gathering, leave some for her to pick up. And don't embarrass her. Don't make fun of her. Don't, don't make this awkward. Like, just be nice to her. That's what he's doing. Like, Boaz is just showing extreme kindness towards Ruth. And then we're told at the end of the day, she gathers what is translated here, 26 quarts of barley. Some of your translations might say an ephah, which was just a unit of measurement during this time. And we're not sure exactly how much that is. It's 26 quarts is just kind of our best guess of what that would be about. What that translated to was anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of grain. You might think, well, yeah, I mean, she worked all day. That sounds about right. No, that, that, that's a crazy amount of grain for one gleaner to get. The hired servants, the hired workers of Boaz typically would have taken home as part of their payment one to two pounds of barley at the end of a day. And she takes home 30 to 50 pounds in one day. I mean, this just shows you the kind of generosity that Boaz is showing Ruth in this time. And, and, and she comes home. She comes home to Naomi with this, with this huge bag of grain that she probably just had to drag through the city. She brings it home to Naomi. And not only do they have a bunch of grain that's going to provide for them for a while here, not only that, but she's got, she's got leftovers. She's got leftovers, the food that's already done. You don't have to take a few hours to cook anything. No, I've got food right here for you, Naomi. I've got food. It's an instant meal. This is the first like takeout fast food meal that we see in the Bible. Like that's what Boaz is doing here. So this is, this is new. Let's look at Naomi's reaction to this. Because again, remember like the, Naomi's coming back to Bethlehem thinking that she is like, her life is just over. She's done for. She's going to live out the days in her, uh, for poverty, just begging for scraps from people. And then Ruth comes home after one day of cleaning with this huge bag of grain in a to-go box. And, and then this is her reaction. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you gather barley today? And where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she worked with and said, the name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And probably at this point, like we're not given any indication that Ruth knows who Boaz is, that he's a close relative, that Naomi knows who he is. She's just like, man, this, this nice dude named Boaz, let me glean. And he gave me a bunch of food. Like, isn't that awesome? But Naomi is just kind of like overcome here in this moment. And then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. That's the second time we've been told that. This man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, he also told me to stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, so there's, there's a few things happening. I want to make sure we point out and understand before we move on today. So first of all, Naomi is just shocked, right? Like we would all be shocked. You, you go out to glean, you're hoping for just like a few little scraps that you can kind of scrape by enough food until you can go out and glean again. And here she comes in with this huge bag full of grain and leftovers. And Naomi is just blown away. She's like, where did you go? That's crazy. I can't believe you got that much food. Where did you go? And she's like, oh yeah, I went to this field. This is Boaz guy. And Naomi is again like, Boaz, what? Boaz, really? Boaz. And we're just probably like, yeah, sure. Boaz. I don't know what the big deal is. Why are you, why are you, why are you getting so excited? She's like, oh, I'm so like, Naomi is so excited. Why? Why? Because he's a close relative. He's a close relative. Now, now why, why does that matter? 
Well, she explains why. She says that he is one of our family redeemers. Some of your translations might say kinsman redeemer or just a redeemer. Now, let me explain why that's significant and why that matters, because that is going to come back into play in the next two chapters. So it's important for us to know what's going on here. And again, we'll dig into this idea a little bit more in chapter three and especially in chapter four. But, but that word for family redeemer is the Hebrew word goel, goel. Goel, and that is a word that refers to the family redeemer or the kinsman redeemer that is mentioned throughout the law in the Old Testament. So what is that? What's a family redeemer? What's a kinsman redeemer? It is a family member who is kind of designated as someone who would help out the other family members in their time of need. So if you fell on hard times, if life was difficult, if life was hard, you had these family redeemers who would step in and help you out when you needed it. And there's a few different examples and ways that a family redeemer was called on through the Old Testament law to help their family members. One of the ways, one of the more prominent ways, and again, one of the ways that we're going to see play out in this book alone is that a a family redeemer could buy back property that was sold by somebody if they fell on hard times. So you fall on hard times and you've got this piece of land. You're like, man, I can't make my payments this month. So let me just sell my land. And you sell your land to get the money. But, But during this time, land was really significant. And it was really important for the Israelite culture to keep the family land in the family. So a family redeemer could then buy that land back. So as what Leviticus 25, 25 says, if your brother becomes destitute and sells part of his property, his nearest relative may come and redeem what his brother has sold. So if I fall on hard times, I sell my land, but I've got my brother or a cousin or an uncle or somebody close relative who was wealthier, who had the money, who could do this, could come in and say, no, 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 I'm going to buy that land back. It's going to stay in your family. It's still yours. I got you covered. I got you covered. So that's what a family redeemer do. Another way is if a family could, this family member, this family kinsman redeemer could buy back a family member who sold themselves into servanthood or slavery at this time. So again, if you fell on even harder economic times, what you could do is just kind of become an indentured servant, just kind of sell yourself to one of the wealthy landers and say, hey, I'm just going to, I need the money. I'm going to work for you. And instead of paying me, you're going to pay off my debts. Now it was really, I mean, that was like, that was like, again, bottom of the society kind of wrong. You're not earning a lot of money. So trying to pay off your debts in that kind of situation, like you were just absolutely desperate, had no other option, no other place to turn to. And it would have taken you years or, or if ever to pay that back. So here's where a family redeemer could come in and go, no, 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 no. I'm buying you back. You're not going to live out your life as a servant. I'm going to pay off your debts. You're good to go. I got you covered. So that's what a family redeemer would do. Another way that they would do it is they would become what the Old Testament refers to as the avenger of blood. If you see that throughout the Old Testament, this is uh, family members were called upon to avenge the death of somebody in their family who was murdered. Another way, this could be the John Wick provision of the law. So if, you, if your uh, family member was murdered, then you had these close family relatives who would come in and avenge your death, which is just, I know, crazy. We need to dig into that because that's just wild. But that was one way. Another way was they could receive money on behalf of a deceased family member who was the victim of a crime. And then the last way we see this play out in the Old Testament is a family redeemer would be an advocate for somebody who was maybe in a lawsuit or some injustice had occurred to them. The family redeemer would come in and make sure that justice was served. So that's family redeemer. That's what's going on. And that's why Naomi is so excited. She's like, oh, he's, he's one of our family redeemers. He can help us out. He can help us out. So Boaz is one of Elimelech's close relatives. Now notice that it said one of, not the only, not the family redeemer, 
one of. It's a little foreshadowing. Keep that in your pocket. Remember that. We're going to come back to that in chapters three and four. Okay, so we're going to come back to that. But he is one of their family redeemers. And Boaz, as we're going to see, again, this just displays his character. Boaz, again, he is more than willing to step in and, and, and come in and, and hold up and, and, and uphold his responsibility as a family redeemer in this situation. He's more than willing to come in and step in and care for Naomi and Ruth. And you might, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I would do the same thing. Like, what a good guy. Like, that's that, great, Travis. No, but like the law is a little ambiguous here because again, women during this time had no rights. So it's not like your husband passes away and the land gets transferred into your name. No, not going to happen. That land is up for grabs at that moment. And again, Boaz, the law says, we just read it in Leviticus 25, if your brother, again, another way, if your male relative falls on hard times, there's not really a lot of provision here for women and especially widows in the law. So Boaz doesn't technically have to help out because Elimelech's dead. His close relative is dead. He doesn't really necessarily have to help Naomi. But again, what we talked about last week was Boaz follows the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. So he is more than willing to come in and step in and help care for Naomi because she's part of the family. She's part of the family, right? And then the, the law certainly, I mean, maybe it could possibly, you could kind of like, well, you know, Naomi, she's an Israelite. You know, she's part of the family. Like that kind of makes sense. But Ruth definitely does not apply to her. She's a foreigner. She's a Moabite. She's got no rights according to God's law. She's not an Israelite. She is a Moabite. Boaz certainly has no obligation to come in and help Ruth, and yet he does. This demonstrates the kind of man that Boaz is. He understands that that God's family redeemer laws, it doesn't just apply to the men. It provides to the family. The point of that law is to help those in need. Same with the gleaning laws, same way. The, the gleaning laws, the point was not just let them glean, but let them be fed, right? Help them out, provide for them. It's the same with this. Boaz understands that. And this chapter ends with, with Ruth staying in Boaz's field and working the whole harvest time, which is about six to seven weeks. So when we pick up in chapter three next week, just know we're gonna fast forward about six to seven weeks. All right, so let's, let's go back and, and focus in. I wanna zoom in and just camp out in verse 20 of chapter two. That's where we're gonna spend the bulk of our time this morning. So verse 20, let me read this again. We're gonna focus on the, the first part of it here. This is Naomi's reaction when Ruth walks in. She says, Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. If you underline, highlight, circle things in your Bible, underline that word kindness. Kindness. That's a big word. That's an important word. That's, that's where I want to I focus our time today. What does that word mean? So that word is, like I said, it's a very important word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And it's used a lot in our Old Testament. And it's used and translated in a lot of different ways. So sometimes it's translated like here, kindness. Sometimes you could see it translated as as loving kindness or, or steadfast love or faithful love. Now, the reason it's translated a bunch of different ways is because we don't really have an English equivalent to the Hebrew word hesed. So we struggle with that. We struggle to find a way to translate that and understand that because we hear kindness and automatically we're probably thinking a bunch of different things. Like, we'll just be nice, just be kind, just be a good person. That's what that means. No, there's so much more to that. There's so much more to hesed than just that. 
If I could boil it down to just its basic elements, it would be this. Hesed is the word that describes the kind of love and commitment God has for us, his people. And it's the kind of love and commitment he calls us to have to him and to one another. Let me give you some examples of how this is used throughout your Old Testament. So first of all, it's a word used for God's faithful and covenantal love for his people. So one of these places is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says this, The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, abounding in hesed, and truth, maintaining faithful love, maintaining Hesed to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Psalm 5 verse 7 says, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love, by the abundance of your Hesed. I bow down toward your holy temple in reverential awe of you. Psalm 23, famous Psalm 23 verse 6, this is how it ends. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me. Maybe some of your translations say only goodness and mercy. Only goodness and faithful love, only goodness and hesed will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Psalm 51 verse one, if you remember the context of that, this is the Psalm that David writes after he's confronted and come face to face with his sin that he committed against Bathsheba and her husband, where he's awakened to what he had done. And he writes this Psalm completely broken over his sin. And in repentance, he writes this Psalm 51 verse one, be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your hesed, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. This is a word used of how God loves us. His committed, his faithful, his everlasting and enduring and steadfast love and faithfulness to us. That's Hesed. But it's also used of the love that God wants us to have for him and one another. So this is other places where it's used. Proverbs 3, verse 3. Never let loyalty and faithfulness, never let loyalty and Hesed leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Hosea 6.6, for I desire faithful love. I desire hesed and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is God talking to his people in the book through the prophet Hosea. And what does he say? What does he want? He wants faithful love. He wants hesed from us. Zechariah 7, 9, the Lord of armies says this, make fair decisions, show faithful love and compassion to one another. What does he want us to show to one another? Hesed, faithful love, kindness, steadfastness towards one another. And then one of my favorite verses, Micah 6, 8, says mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what does the Lord, what, what it is the Lord requires of you. All right, that's, those are big words. What does God want from us? What does he want us to do with our lives? It's this, Act justly to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. Some of your translations might say to act justly and to love mercy. And even this, it's a little confusing. Like that love mercy, like what does that actually mean? And I've heard preachers, we just kind of struggle to like put into words what that means or, or love faithfulness. How do you love faithfulness? What does that mean? Well, that word to love mercy or to love faithfulness is hesed. And hopefully we're getting a better idea of what that actually means. What does God want from us? He wants faithful and committed and steadfast and enduring love for him and for one another. That's what he wants from us. That's what he's calling us to do. 
In the New Testament, I believe this concept of hesed is summarized by Jesus when he gives us the two greatest commandments. You know, he's asked in Matthew 22 and in Luke chapter 10, what's, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? He says, well, that, there's actually two. Two greatest commandments. The entire Old Testament is summed up in this first, most important, the biggest one, love the Lord your God with everything, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love God with everything. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's Hesed. That's what we're talking about here. That is, is godly kindness. And this is, this is all over the book of Ruth. This word is only used three times. We see it used here in chapter two, verse 20. We already read it in, in chapter one, where Naomi says this to Ruth and Orpah, her two daughters-in-law. She says this in verse eight. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to me. May the Lord show Hesed to you. And then Boaz says this of Ruth in chapter three, verse 10. We'll get into this next week. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before. So even though the word's only used three times in the book of Ruth, the, the entire book of Ruth is just soaked in this idea of God's kindness, of God's faithful love, of God's Hesed towards us. And, and in this way, it's more, it's more demonstrated throughout the book of Ruth. It's more like giving us pictures of what it looks like, right? It's shown to us by the way Ruth treats Naomi. It's shown to us by the way Boaz treats Ruth and Naomi. And it's shown to us in all of these ways how, how God just acts and intervenes in their lives. So what can we learn about God's hesed? What can we learn about God's kindness here in this passage and in the book of Ruth? Well, three things I want to give you before we... And today, the first one, first thing about godly kindness, godly kindness serves, it doesn't demand. Godly kindness serves, it doesn't demand. Godly kindness serves, it doesn't demand. Let's look again at verse 14 here. Look again at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate, was satisfied, and had some left over. Now, what is Boaz doing in this moment? Well, first of all, he, he invites her in, right? He invites her in. Like at this time, so they're pausing to have a meal because again, harvesting, hard work. You're out there, hard labor all day long in the hot sun. And so that's why you got to take, you know, got, got to refuel, got to refuel, got to get some food. Now this typically, again, would have just been for the hired hands. And the gleaner would have just, you know, they probably would have just kept working, honestly, because this is the only way they're going to get food. If they don't keep working, if they don't just try to find some little bit of grain, then they're not going to eat. So it's like, I don't have time to stop and eat, even if I could. But even if I, even if I wanted to eat, even if, if I saw what you had and I was like, ooh, that, that looks good. I want some of that. I'm not allowed to come into that. You're not going to invite me, a foreigner, a widow, into that. No, I'm going to have to go into town. I'm going to have to go scrounge up some. I'm going to have to go find food somewhere. But no, Boaz sees her and invites her in. Again, she's an outsider. Man, you ever been in a situation where you just walk in and you, you immediately know, I'm an outsider here. I don't fit in. I don't necessarily belong. Like, this is awkward. I don't know anybody. I don't know what's going on. Like, anytime you're new in a place, like, it's just, it's that awkward feeling of like, ah, oh, damn, this is, this is weird. I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm just, you know, I'm standing here. I'm like, oh, hi, hi, guys. Oh, why am I being so weird? I don't know. But you just stand out and it's awkward and you feel it's like, and Boaz sees, and he's like, hey, just, just come, just come with us. Come sit with us. He invites her in. And then not only that, not only that, Boaz serves her food. 
Now, it's not just like, hey, get some food. No, it's like, here, let me make a plate for you. Let me give you some roasted grain. Oh, hey, hey, don't forget the vinegar sauce. This would have been like a condiment of the time. Like, hey, here's some ranch for you. Like, like don't forget that. Like, not only does he want her to eat, he wants her to, to be fully satisfied and enjoy what everybody else is doing. He fully invites her in and then serves her food. This widow, this foreign widow who is the bottom of society, and here's this landowner, this, this, this boss man, Boaz, going, no, let me make a plate for you. Let me make a plate for you. And then, again, not, not only that, like, it's not just let me make a plate for you. Let me, let me make sure you eat enough. Oh, and you got leftovers? Boom, let me put it to go box. Oh, you want to take some of that vinegar sauce? Let me, yeah, let me get you some of that to put in there. You take that home. Like, Boaz just serves her, and that's what kindness does. That's what Hesed does. It looks for ways to serve others rather than demand that you serve me. That's godly kindness. Godly kindness takes the focus off of us, off of what I want, off of what I need, and looks to how can I serve those around me. That's godly kindness. One of the things that, that, you know, as parents, if you have kids, like you, you try to teach your kids and give them, you know, some tools to, be, to grow up and become a, a well-functioning adult in society that makes good decisions, right? So one of the things that I try to help my kids understand, especially at this age, uh, is like the world does not revolve around you, okay? But they think it does. They think it does. I think it's all about them. And, and I, I see this mostly at, at mealtime. So like typically we'll make the kids dinner and we'll, we'll put it on their plates and we'll, we'll give them their food and then Kendra make their plate and then, then I'll, I'll make mine last. But by the time I go, it's usually one of them's already done with their food and they want seconds or, or they're out of water and they want this, they want this. So I'm just like, I'm the server basically at our house at dinner time. I'm like, oh, what, what can I get you? Oh, you need a refill? I got you. Oh, you need some more of that? Oh yeah, let me, let me get you some more. You, you, need some, you need some vinegar sauce too? You need some ranch? I got you. Oh, let, me, let me get you covered for that. And I was joking with Kendra last time. I'm like, you know what? I should just, I should just not eat until everybody goes to bed because I'm just, I'm like up and up, up and down and up and down. I'm like, oh, you need something? I'm going to get you something. But, but what we try to do is we try to be like, hey, the world does not revolve around you. You know, you think it does. And that's what I try to tell them. Like, hey, it's not all about you. There's five people in this family. It's not all about you one at this time. It's not all about you. We got to look to other people. Like we try to do that. But again, they're, they're seven, six, and two. So they're only going to get that a little bit. The hope is like you're building a foundation at this age with, with the little kids. But here's the thing. They're, they're kids. So they kind of get a pass sometimes. But how often we as adults do we act like that? Where it's just like, it's all about me. It's all about what I want. I look at you and I think, what can you do for me? Not what, I, what can I do for you, right? No, it's all about me. Serve me. Give me what I want. And this culture that we're in doesn't help with that, right? We are in the age of instant gratification. I want things right here, right now. And if you don't give it to me right now, if I have to wait even a little bit, then I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm angry. And I'm like, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me, right? I had to wait in traffic. I had to wait in line at Chick-fil-A and it's taken forever. And there's two lines and nobody knows how to merge into one. It's just frustrating, right? Like, I, I'm just, you know, talking here. Let me move on. Um, no, we, we get frustrated, right? Like, if we just, if I don't get it right now, then I, we just have no patience in this age of instant gratification. And it's just made us even more self-centered, but what godly kindness does is it is selfless, not selfish. It looks to others, not just ourselves. This is what Paul writes in Philippians 2. He writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. 
This is what Boaz does, right? Boaz does not have to treat Ruth the way that he's treating her. He is going well beyond the demands of the law. He is going over and beyond here to be kind to her and to be generous and to serve her. But Boaz isn't thinking in terms of like, what's the bare minimum that I have to do here? No, what he does is he sees somebody in need and he steps in to serve and meet that need. And we can learn a lot from that attitude. That's godly kindness. So we need to look for ways that we can serve. How can I serve my spouse? How can I serve my kids? How can I, how can I serve people at work, your boss and your coworkers? You may be like, Travis, you don't know them. They're terrible people. They might be. I don't know. They might be, but God doesn't give us provisions for only serve those people that you like. I don't see that anywhere. It calls us to serve. Look for ways to serve. Look, your neighbors, your neighbors, your community. How can you serve those around you? My wife and I, Lord willing, are going to close on our house. We're, we're moving uh, in a little bit. Hopefully, again, Lord willing, y'all can pray for that to go through. Um, and it's a little sad. Like, we're excited to move. Uh, we're excited to be closer to here and all that good stuff. But, but we're a little sad because, man, we, we love our neighborhood. We love our neighbors. We've built really good relationships. And I know there's, there's several people that if I needed something, I mean, I could call and they would drop everything and come help me out. And they know the same about me. If they call and reach out, like, hey, Travis, I need to borrow this. I need you to, can you come help me do this or move that? Man, like, I'm there. I'm there to help. Like, we need to look for ways that we can serve those around us. At church, at church, y'all, we need to be serving. If this, if you say, you know what, Haynes Creek is my church. I am committed here, whether, you know, you've only been here for a couple weeks or you've been here for years. If this is your place, you need to be serving. You need to be serving. That's the beauty of a church like ours. I can honestly sit here and tell you, we need you. We need you. Some churches say that, and I've been in bigger churches where I say that, and it's like, you know, it'd be great to have you, but I don't necessarily need you. No, y'all, we need you. We need you. This does not happen without volunteers. So if you faithfully serve week in and week out, thank you. This is only possible because of volunteers. Volunteers get here early and set up. Volunteers take time before they go home to put everything back. Volunteers teach your kids the Bible in kids' ministry. That all happens because of volunteers. We survive because of volunteers. So I'm telling you, if you're not serving, we need you. God can and will use you in a lot of ways. And let me just talk to the men for a second before we move on. Let me just talk to the men. Men, we need your help. There is a big need that we have right now, and it's with setup. We've been setting up each week. This is what we do. We set up the chairs. We set up the kids' ministry. We set up all this stuff that you see. I'm not allowed to touch this stuff because I'll mess it up. But we have people that do that, and they'll teach you what to do. They don't trust me, but they'll trust you. But we, we, every, everything that you see that's set up on Sunday mornings, people do that. People sacrificially get here at 8 a.m., and they help set up every single week. And we've been doing this since August. And here's the thing that is awesome and also kind of like, man, man, what's going on here? It's the same folks doing it week in and week out. And I love them. They're amazing people. And I'm so thankful for them. And honestly, if they didn't do this, we wouldn't have anything that you see here. But this is a great opportunity to step up. Men, I need your help. We need your help. If you can just take 30, 45 minutes, once or twice a month, that would go so far in relieving some of the folks that do this week in and week out. Because here's what I know. As much as they love you and Jesus and this church, they're going to burn out at some point. And then they're not going to do it. And guess what? We're all going to be sitting on the floor. And your kids are going to be running around like crazy. You're going to be like, what happened to all the volunteers? They quit because they do it every week. We need your help. So then here's, here's an action step from today. You want an application point? I'm going to have a sign-up sheet over there on that table with big words called setup on it. Put your name down on any week that you can help out get here at eight. We're usually done by 8.35, 8.45. 
You got plenty of time to go back home, help your wife get the kids ready if you got little ones like I do, and come back at 10 o'clock. We need your help. We need your help. And look, ultimately, we don't serve because the pastor's trying to guilt you into it or, you know, you feel bad that other people are doing it. No, we serve because Jesus sets the example for us. Jesus serves us. Mark 10, 45 says, says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if anybody deserved to be served, it's God. It's God himself. But he comes down from heaven and says, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you to serve me. I want to serve you. That's our example, church. We serve because Jesus serves us. All right, let's move on to the next point. All right, so that's the first point. Second point, godly kindness gives, it doesn't hoard. Godly kindness gives, it doesn't hoard. Again, we've seen this over and over again. Boaz is just extremely generous to Ruth, right? He gives her food, gives her enough to be filled up and have leftovers. He tells her like, don't go anywhere else to glean. You stay in my fields and I'm gonna make sure you get taken care of. Oh, and don't even worry about, you don't even have to cut down all the stuff yourself. No, I want you to pick from the stuff that I'm cutting down for you. Take from the bundles. Like this is just unheard of, the type of generosity that Boaz is showing her in this moment. But again, this is what godly kindness does. This is what Hesed does. It is generous. It's generous. It's generous with, with our time, with our talents, with our treasure. It's generous with, with, with our resources, with our possessions. And yes, with our money. The Bible speaks a lot about money. Thankfully it does because I don't have to just make up stuff about that. I just rely on God's word to talk about this. The Bible speaks a lot about our money and our possessions and what we're to do with it. And the overall message, the consistent theme of what scripture calls us to do with our finances and with our possessions is to be generous. Is to be generous. As what Deuteronomy 15, seven through eight says, if there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan him enough for whatever need he has. Proverbs 28, 27, the one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but the one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. Hebrews 13, 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share for God is pleased with such sacrifices. I'm going to put that verse in our kids' playroom, big bold letters. Do not neglect to do what is good and to share. That word is, is, is generous. Give. Be generous. God's pleased when we sacrifice for generosity's sake. See what the Bible calls us to with our, with our finances, with our money, with, with our possessions. He calls us to faith-filled generosity. He calls us to faith-filled generosity. But, but if we're honest with, our, with ourselves, I think we can admit, uh, some of us at least, that, that doesn't always come naturally. It doesn't come naturally to us. Instead, we're, we, are, we are bent towards, and, and what our culture is bent towards is not faith-filled generosity, but fear-based hoarding. See, we, we see... We see everything that, that we have, right? Our money, our possessions. We, we see all that and we, when we say mine. That's our attitude. We're bent towards that. We see everything we have and we go, that's mine. That's mine. 
We're dealing with this with our, with our two-year-old right now. So she, everything that she has, everything that, that's hers, man, it, it's mine. Mine, 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 mine. That's mine. That's my list. And she does not like to share. I need to read this Hebrews verse to her over and over again. Maybe she'll get it, but she doesn't like to share. So if, if like the dog snatches one of her toys or Zayden and Livy accidentally plays, she screams, that's mine. That's mine. It's like, whoa, girl, chill out. Calm down. I get it. Okay, that's yours. I didn't know. I didn't know it was that serious. That's mine. And, and the other day, I thought this was funny. The other day, I pull out peanut butter from our, uh, from our pantry. I pull out peanut butter, and Milo will, will ask for peanut butter sometimes. So she gets peanut butter on a spoon or whatever she eats it. Usually, she smears it all over her hands and face and in her hair. But anyways, she likes peanut butter. And she looks at it, and she goes, that's mine. That's mine. That's my peanut butter. And she kind of combines words at this age. So it's, it's not peanut butter. It's pea butter. That, that's my peanut butter. I go, no, it's not. That's all of our peanut butter. She's like, no, that's my peanut butter. My peanut butter. I'm like, okay, girl, I won't touch the peanut butter. My goodness, I didn't know. But everything to her is, is that's mine. That's mine. How often are we like that with our, with our finances, with, with, our, with our money, with our possessions? See, what scripture teaches us, though, is that that's not actually ours. That's not actually ours. Everything that we have, all of our money, all of everything, our jobs, our, the money that we get from our jobs, all of our possessions, our house, our car, whatever it is, that's not really ours. It all belongs to God. It's all been given to us by God. So what scripture calls us to do is to look at all the things that he's given us and not say, that's mine, but instead say, it's yours. It's yours. And because it's yours, God, you get to decide what we do with it. You get to tell me what to do with it. And what does God tell us to do with it? Be generous. Be generous. Be generous. Be good stewards, good managers of what God has given us. And look, to do that, to, to get to that point, first it starts with our heart. This is why Jesus says this in, in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God knows how much of an idol money and possessions and wealth and materialism is in our hearts. So you want to be generous, man? It starts with killing off that idol. It starts with loving God more than you love your stuff. That's what it starts with. And then if we do that, and then we can take this next step of trusting God with our finances and doing with it as he calls us to. And what is he going to call you to? I'm just going to tell you right now, he's going to call you to generosity. He's going to call you to generosity. He's going to call you to look for ways to help those in need, just like we see here. Who's in need? Who can I help? What does the Lord bless me with so that I can go and bless somebody else? And another thing that we see in the New Testament, one of the ways that God calls us, one of the primary ways he calls us to be generous in the New Testament is towards the work of his mission. And we see this pattern all throughout the New Testament that we, part of what God has given us, he wants us to give back to him and to the church to advance his ministry and his mission. And we call this the tithe or whatever word you want to put on it. But the idea is that we are generous towards the work of the gospel. Again, if you call this your church, if this is your church, man, we, we should be giving. We should be giving. Again, we, we can't do anything without your gifts. We can't do any of that. And I always tell people this when it comes to, to finances. Should we give to the church because you think God needs your money? No, no, God doesn't need your money. Does the church, do we need money? Yeah, yeah, we need money. We can't do anything without money. That's how the world works, okay? But we, we don't give because we're like, oh, here you go, God. Here's a little tip. Here's a tip. Thanks for blessing me this week. Here you go. Here's, here's, some, here's some coinage for you to, uh, to enjoy, God. Aren't I awesome? Aren't I amazing? 
No, look, God's going to keep this church afloat with or without your money. We do not give because we think we are like, you know, giving something to God that he can't otherwise have. That's not the mindset. No, we give because it aligns our heart with his. It shows us, I trust you with my finances, with my well-being, with my needs, not myself, not my bank account, not my job. I trust you. So it aligns our hearts with his. And then we get to partner with the work of ministry. That's what I tell people. When you give to this church, you can trust that that money is going towards ministry. It allows us to do things like this. It allows us to do Bible studies. It allows us to do different church events and outreach things and stuff like that. It allows us to care for people. Throughout this year alone, we have helped needy families in our church and in our community pay bills, have groceries, provide food. Just recently, we we sponsored all the kids for top soccer. It's this special needs soccer program done through the YMCA. We sponsored all those kids. They didn't have to worry about a registration fee. No, we were like, we got you covered. How is that possible? It's because of faithful givers like you. When you give, you partner with God in ministry. So again, it's an invitation. If you're not giving and this is your church, I want to invite you into that. You're missing out. You're missing out. This is what uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart. Verse 11, jump down to verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. When we give, we partner with God and his work. It's an incredible invitation that God allows us to do with him. Don't waste that opportunity. And look, here's the thing. You're not going to be able to outgive God. You're not going to be able to outgive God. It's like Corinthians 6. If you so generously, you will reap generously. And the other way to say that is like, God's got you covered. He's got you covered. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter six, verse 38. This is Jesus talking. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now that verse has been hijacked by prosperity gospel for years. So it's not saying, man, if I give a bunch of money, God's gonna roll up with a Bentley in my driveway. No, that's not what's happening. The point is this, be generous and trust God for your provision. Now, I can just tell you from my life, he's done just that. He's done just that. We've never had a lavish lifestyle. That's not, we're just not rolling in the bank here, just like, you know, money flying everywhere. That's not our lives by any stretch of the imagination. But God has always and continuously provided for our needs above and beyond than we could ever ask or imagine because that's what our God does. Trust him with your finances. This is what godly kindness does. It trusts God and it's generous. All right, last one, and then we'll, we'll end here. Point three, godly kindness pursues, it doesn't abandon. Godly kindness pursues, it doesn't abandon. Look again at verse 20, because Naomi says something very interesting about God's kindness. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness. He's not abandoned his kindness. Now that is significant for Naomi. Remember where Naomi has been, right? Remember where we, we left her at the end of chapter one. What did she say at the end of chapter one? She comes back to Bethlehem, just broken and overcome with loss and grief and pain and suffering. She comes back and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. And remember, Naomi means sweet or pleasant. She's like, I'm not sweet or pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She says, I'm bitter. And the reason I'm bitter, God made me bitter. 
He made me better. He is against me in every idea, right? Like that's her mindset. The Lord is against her. The Lord has abandoned her. The Lord has turned his back on her. The Lord is actively fighting against her. That's the mindset that Naomi has been in. And then Ruth comes in and she comes back with this huge bag full of grain and some leftovers. And, and Naomi's like, whoa, where'd you get that from? She's like, Boaz. And she's just like, whoa, whoa. I'm sure she just had to like collect herself for a minute. And Ruth's probably like, Naomi, you okay? I, Boaz, like, I don't, I don't, what's the big deal, Boaz? But again, Naomi knows what that means. And she's reminded of the truth that although she thought God had abandoned her, he hadn't. He hadn't. God was always right there. And, and seeing Ruth come in and hearing where Ruth has been and hearing about the kindness of Boaz, Ruth or Naomi is reminded that God has not turned his back on her. He has not forgotten her. This level of kindness is demonstrated through Boaz's commitment to help her out and to help Ruth out. And, and that's, that's the picture that, that we need to take. That's, that's Hesed. That's godly kindness. It's this, this kind of love and, and commitment and faithfulness that we're to demonstrate towards one another, that we're to have for one another. We are not to abandon each other. Boaz doesn't do that for Ruth. Again, he has no obligation technically towards Ruth. He could just, you know, hey, you can have access to the field, whatever, but like, that's it, all right, that's it. And he, again, just by doing that, he's gone over and beyond what he should. But no, he does not abandon them in their time of need. He pursues he is steadfast. He is committed and faithful to helping them out. That's godly kindness. Godly kindness pursues by bearing with one another, by forgiving each other, by, by fighting for unity and reconciliation, by refusing to let these little silly arguments and divisions and disagreements that split everybody all the time, we refuse to let that happen here in God's house with God's family. We say, no, we don't abandon. We pursue. We stay steadfast. We stay committed and faithful to one another. We fight for the relationships. See, our culture lacks any kind of grace right now, man. You mess up, you're canceled. You're done for. You're out of here. There's no grace. There's no second chances. Thankfully, our God is not like that because I would have been canceled a long time ago. Our God is full of grace and favor and second and third and fourth and fifth and a billionth chances. That's our God. And he calls us to do the same calls us to do the same. This is what Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says about our relationships with one another. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And then Matthew 18, this is what Jesus says. Then Peter approached him, that's Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? And remember, Peter, when he says seven, he's thinking like, that's a lot. But surely Jesus is going to be like, no, seven, that's crazy, Peter. Three or four tops, you're good to go. But no, what does Jesus says? I tell you as many, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. It's not like, okay, well, on the 491st time, I don't have to forgive. You know that, that language Jesus is saying, you always forgive. You always forgive. You don't worry about how many times you forgive somebody. 
Your job is to forgive. That's what God calls us to. And I, I love that God, that the New Testament just assumes that in the church with, with relationships with other people, that we're going to drive each other crazy, that we're going to make each other mad, that we're going to offend each other, that we're going to maybe even sin against one another, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Like the Bible just assumes that, that when you take sinful people and you put them in a church or you put them in a marriage, you put them in relationship with one another, that there's going to be some friction And what does the Bible say to do? Bear with one another. Another way to put that up, put up with each other. Put up with each other and forgive each other. That's godly kindness. We pursue. We don't turn our back on each other. We don't abandon one another. Godly kindness pursues. It doesn't abandon. When Naomi sees the Lord's kindness through Boaz, she's reminded of that exact truth. She's reminded of that and it changes everything for her. Changes everything for her. Her disposition changes. She realizes, again, because it's felt like God has just abandoned her, that he's forgotten about it. He's turned his back on her. And in that moment, she's reminded of the truth that that's not true. That God has not abandoned her. That he has not forgotten. That he is not done with her. That he is still at work. That's who our God is. That's what our God does. It's true for Naomi. And it's true for us. So maybe you come here today and and you're walking through the darkest valley that you could have ever imagined, just like Naomi is. Or maybe you've come here today and and you've you've been praying for this one thing. You've been praying for it over and over and over again. It just seems like God has has gone silent. Like, hello, God, you you, you there? You hearing me out? Or or maybe maybe you come here today and and recently you've you've made the worst mistake in your life. Or maybe you've come here and and that one sin that you struggle with that you promised God recently, you're like, man, I'm never gonna do that again. And just yesterday, you you did it again. And you're walking in here just overcome with guilt and shame. Or maybe you're coming in here and it's just a miracle that you drug yourself out of bed and even got here because life is just wearing you down. You're just frustrated and disappointed wherever you find yourself today. The message from God is the same. He has not abandoned you. He is still pursuing you. I told you that we don't really have a good translation for uh, the word hesed, but I think the place where I've seen it captured the best is actually in my kid's Bible. This, this Bible is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Parents, young kids, if you don't have one of those, get one of those. Jesus Storybook Bible translates Hesed, God's love, as this. The author refers to it as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's Hesed. That's God's love for us. It's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter how much maybe you have turned your back on God. Doesn't matter how much you've maybe chased your sin over and over and over again. It does not matter because God has not abandoned you. And he's right here, ready for you to turn back to him with his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I'll end with this. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, because of the Lord's faithful love, because of Hesed, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
because of God's never giving up, never failing, unbreaking, always and forever love. We can enjoy his new mercies today. So wherever you find yourself, step into that mercy, step in and enjoy God's chesed and his love and his faithfulness, his forgiveness and his kindness towards you. Let's pray. And as we pray, we're going to do what we do every single Sunday. We're going to step into this time of worship and communion. And, and believers, this is a time for you. It's time for you to, to center your hearts and your thoughts and your mind back on the Lord. And maybe you are coming in here with, with a heavy burden, whether it's just life in general or the sin that you're carrying, or, or maybe you've been reminded of some relationships that, that have been damaged. So wherever you find yourself, I want to encourage you, Christian believer in the room, to just spend some time in prayer, spend some time in repentance, spend some time just centering your heart back on who Jesus is and what he has done for you, remembering the gospel, remembering his faithful love for you, his kindness, and his mercy for you. And believer, as you're ready, you, you come to either side of the room with the tables, you, you take the bread, you take the cup, you eat and drink, and, and you remember God, Jesus, breaking his body, shedding his blood on the cross for you and your salvation. If you're here and, and you're not a believer, you've never put your faith in Jesus, we love that you're here. I want you to keep coming. But, but this specific time of communion, the table is not for you. But again, God's love extends to you as well. And he invites you in. And the way to step into that hesed, that love, that forgiveness, that faithfulness is trusting in him. It's putting your faith in him. So if you want to do that today, I'll be hanging out in the back. Anybody here would love to chat with you about that, but please come find someone. Come talk to me. Come talk to somebody about what that means and what that looks like and, and put your faith in Jesus today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Lord, you are kind. You are good. You are full of mercy and grace, Lord, and we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, you remind us of your faithful love. Would you lead us to live out that faithful love? Would you, would you build within us a heart and a love for you and for others, Lord? We thank you for the example of Ruth and Boaz and the story, Lord, you continue to teach us in your word, Lord. You are so good, so kind to us, Jesus. We ask all this in your faithful and powerful name. Amen.